science story, huh? It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we're bringing you two stories from people who had to adapt to survive, whether it's a young person dealing with the aftermath of cancer or a scientist surviving war. Our first story this week is from Benjamin Rubenstein. It was recorded in September 2017 at Busboys and Poets 5th and K in Washington, D.C. The theme of that night was damages. I was 19 years old, standing on a wooden platform in a huge square room in front of a machine that delivered radiation. To give you a sense of the size of this room, imagine you're microwaving a single popcorn kernel. Only that popcorn kernel is alive and named Benjamin Rubenstein. (laughs) My radiation technician, a lean blonde girl who looked not much older than I was, told me to stand with my arms slightly out to the sides and to stand for five minutes without moving. I had some questions I wanted to ask her, like, If you don't like your patient, do you give him extra radiation? (laughs) And do you and your coworkers have competitions to see who can deliver the most radiation, sort of like employee of the month? (laughs) And do you want to get coffee with me in about half a year when I'm no longer near death? She exited the room and pulled the Fort Knox-sized door closed behind her and the x-ray in use sign lit up red. I volunteered to receive radiation because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Radiation was found to kill cancer cells in the late 1800s when scientists realized that it attacked rapidly dividing cells like those in tumors. At first, they didn't understand the power of radiation. They would manipulate radium with their bare hands, only to find that it scorched their tissue from the inside. Over the last 120 years, radiation techniques have come a long way. They now have the cyberknife machine and proton therapy, which can kill cancer cells while minimizing damage to healthy ones. But back in 2003, when I was facing radiation to treat my second cancer, those didn't exist. And I would receive 1,250 rads of radiation spread evenly from head to toe. All my cancer cells and healthy cells would get the same amount. Now, there were pros and cons to receiving radiation. Pros the possibility of killing the cancer in my body. And, never mind, there's one pro. (laughs) Con, a guarantee that 20 minutes after receiving radiation, there would be an explosion out my mouth and colon. Con, the possibility that the radiation wouldn't kill my cancer. Con, 
the possibility that radiation would cause a second cancer, or rather, a third cancer for me. Con, the possibility that radiation would damage the healthy cells in my body. I considered all of these and decided that the pro outweighed the cons. With the door now closed, I heard the machine click into place. I wondered, should I close my eyes? Should I stare at it? Should I stare at some other point in the room? It didn't matter. The radiation would find my eyes no matter where they were looking. I just hoped they would find those cancer cells wherever they were hiding too. The machine started. I knew it started not by sight or sound or smell, but by the immediate churning in my gut, the nausea that burst through me, the hairs on my arms that stood on end. I decided to stare at the big black eye of the machine. I stood there motionless for five minutes. Then the technician, whose bad side I did not want to get on in case my hunch about the employee of the month thing was true, <laughs> re-entered the room, told me to turn around and face the wall behind me for five more minutes. I was depleted and weak from the chemo I had already received, and those 10 minutes were among the hardest things I'd ever endured. I got radiation for 10 minutes a day, twice a day for four days. Half a year later, I got well, and I've been well ever since. That was 13 years ago. I have noticed some unique side effects from radiation over the years. One in particular stands out. A few years ago, I noticed my memory wasn't as strong as it had been. Throughout life, I had this amazing episodic memory. I could visualize events from my life, connect those events to certain periods of time, or sometimes even to specific dates. But a few years ago, I had trouble remembering recent events. And I told my brother this, and Jonathan said, I don't even remember what I ate for lunch today. But I wasn't content just having a stronger memory relative to Jonathan. I thought about my lifestyle. Maybe there's something in my lifestyle that's making my memory slip. I was on a no-sugar, low-carb, calorie-restricted diet, and I drank whiskey and vodka and rum and Jamaican rum known as White Lightning. <laughs> I considered that maybe not giving my brain the energy from food and the alcohol were causing my memory problems. And I accepted that answer. But soon I started to struggle with names, like names of songs, names of movies, names of actors and artists. I knew something was going on here. I went online to the National Institutes of Health website and I did some research. What I found is that radiation to the brain often causes permanent deficiencies in some people. 
Enough was enough. I had to find out once and for all what was going on. So I seeked help. And this past March, I got cognitive testing. Over the course of four hours, I went through a slew of brain tests. One to measure my ability to see patterns. One to recall details of a story I was told. One to name as many mammals as I could in a minute. <laughs> I was told the results would take five weeks. Sure enough, five weeks later, I get a manila folder in the mail and I take out the six page packet. The first page talks about my IQ. I didn't even know they were testing IQ. <laughs> it said mine was between normal and a genius. And I rejoiced. I figured if I just cut some whiskey or some white lightnings, then I'll be fine. Then I flipped the page. According to the cognitive testing, I'm in the bottom seventh percentile for word recall and my ability to name things. Basically, I can think of the words to say, it just takes me longer. As if there are these microsecond delays in between segments of my speech. For the rest of the day, I just felt so sad. I endured so much to extend my life, yet the treatments threatened to reduce the quality of that life. Cancer stole my adolescence, and now it was stealing my words. The next day, I pulled myself together. Humans have this amazing ability to adapt. And I had to adapt because my brain will never repair itself, no matter how many white lightnings I've reduced from my consumption. <laughs> I thought, what can I do to adapt? What can I do so that I can communicate with others using my words and the right words? What can I do? Then it hit me. If I reduce the speed of my speech, then I'll give my brain a chance to catch up. I'll avoid those microsecond delays. Now that I found the solution, whose footsteps would I follow to hone my newfound speech skills? Because humans are also amazing at following examples, sort of like a template. The thing is, this time, I did not even need to slow my brain down for one name to come to mind. I started studying him. I studied his mannerisms and his speech. I watched all his movies and his interviews and his commercials, even those car commercials in which he doesn't say anything at all. This man is the gold standard of slow speech. He is the poster boy for cranial radiation-induced speech deficiencies. My new template I'll follow, my new speech idol is Matthew McConaughey. All right.
All right. All right. That was Benjamin Rubenstein. Benjamin is the author of the Cancer Slang, Superman books, and other personal essays. He speaks about personal health, feeling superhuman, and the urge when he's intoxicated to eat jelly beans. All of them. Benjamin loves inspiring others through a combination of insane stories of survival and attempted humor. Our second story today is from Abbas Musa. It was recorded in May 2017 at Busboys and Poets 5th and K in Washington, D.C. The theme of that night was risk. When I was 12 back in Baghdad, Iraq, uh, Latin soap operas were very popular. And so my sister and my friend and I used to play actors, Latin actors. And three years later, um, I decided I wanted to go into the art program. And uh, it's a five-year program where um, it starts after ninth grade and you would graduate with an associate in, uh, in art. So I told my dad, he was no challenge. He said, okay. And I'm like, okay. Now I've got to convince my mom because I know she's the hard one. So at night, my dad and I told my mom, and she flipped the hell out. <laughs> she said, you're going to a science high school. You're going to a science college. And your actors are poor in Iraq. And uh, that was it. I went to a science high school. And in fall of 2002, I enrolled in college to study computer science because computers were the second thing that I liked after art. Um, at the end of my freshman year, the war started in Iraq, March of 2003. Schools were shut down, businesses were shut down, we stayed at home waiting for the war to be over, hoping not to die. And a month after the war, we went back to college to finish the semester. And I remember our professors told us that we are so lucky because by the time we graduate, all these big companies from around the world, they're gonna come and invest in Iraq and they're gonna need a lot of programmers. And I already imagined myself working for Microsoft and then I extended my imagination to even meet Bill Gates and shake his hand when he come to visit the Iraqi Microsoft branch. And having a computer at home helped me apply what I learned in college at home, especially for the classes that I liked, like the computer graphic class where, where we learned how to make 2D uh, cartoons. And I remember how the professor was impressed with the Pikachu that I draw. And then I learned how to color it and then move it. And in the computer security class where we learned the, the, the algorithm that Julius Caesar used to encrypt his letters. And of course, we learned the modern algorithms and encryptions and decryptions. Right after the war, Baghdad was somewhat safe. And so, you know, terrorists first entered Fallujah, and that's, we hear about them, we hear about the fighting and the bombing, but we did not experience anything yet. Until fall of 2003, that's when they started spreading into Baghdad and other cities, and that's when things got crazy for us. I remember in my sophomore year when a guy named Ahmed in college was killed. His friends told us he was shot in the head in front of his mom. And his mom used the button of her shirt 
to block the blood scatter as it flows from the, the hole in his forehead. His death haunted me for days because back then hearing about death was not the norm, especially if someone get killed before their time. But in the years leading to my graduation, hearing about death became the norm. And I accepted the fact that every morning before I go to school that I might die in a car bomb or, or an IED. But I kept going because, because of hope. And, and the beautiful thing about hope is it never leaves us. Because when it does, we die. That's why those people who live in a war-torn countries, they continue to live because they're hopeful. And then graduation day comes, July of 2006. And after the farewell with my best friends, I go home and I remember what my professors told us about being lucky because the investor is gonna be here and investing and needing us. And I wished if that was true. Instead, the terrorists entered Iraq and started investing and killing us left and right. At that time, Baghdad was so dangerous, not only because the Al-Qaeda terrorists, but also because the Sunni and Shia civil war. Later that year, I had to quit my job and I flee to Kurdistan state in northern Iraq. I got a job uh, as a contractor running a project for the US military. And the officer that I worked for, named Major Abel, he was pretty strict, but also very fair. After a couple of months into the project, um, Major Abel's unit was leaving, and that's when I learned these mili US military units rotate in deployments. And at that time, I was away from my family, I was lonely, and I always felt blue every time I go back to my room. The fear of the unknown was my fear, because I always wondered what tomorrow holds for me, where my family and I gonna end up? Am I gonna live long until I'm old with a cane and big thick glasses? Or, I'm gonna, or am I gonna die young like Ahmed? The new unit comes, uh, the replacement, and uh, they were uh, a Wisconsin National Guard unit. After a couple of months, I finished the project and they offered me a translator position, which I accepted. And they really took me in. The unit commander was a female commander and it was my first time meeting a female commander. She treated everyone in the unit as a member of her own family. Um, they were good and, and their goodness was not just limited to their unit members. You know, soon I felt loved and, and I felt trusted. And soon I had so many friends on base. The base became my new, my new home. We played card once or twice a week. We barbecued together. We took our music and reserved a gym room and danced. We shared stories and pictures about our families and our lives. But then their, their tour came to an end. And I was really worried about the next unit and whether they're gonna be like a family to me or not. And soon enough, I learned that 
they were very, very strict. <clears throat> they didn't like some of the privileges given to translators, and so they took away my cell phone and my CDs. And to a degree, I understood why the cell phone, but not the CDs. And I went to my boss and I told him, but that didn't work. And then I went to the intelligence office because all the civilian officers there are my friends. And I helped them a lot in the past and now I'm asking their help. So I told my friend Matt that I want my CDs back. He asked what's on the CDs and I said, all my projects, my programming projects from school. I took them with me every, everywhere because I never knew where I'm gonna end up. He gives them a call and they said we can't give them back because these are considered writable CDs. I told him no they're not because when I added the files, I locked the CDs. So nothing, they can't be unlocked, nothing can be added, nothing can be removed. They can verify that. And then they said no. And then I said okay, so how about they keep the CDs for now, they put them in a locker or something, and when the time comes and I leave the base for good, they give me back the CDs, because they're mine. But once again, they said no. And I was really heartbroken. Their policies didn't make sense to me. I'm away from my family, I live with them, I serve with them, and I help them. And it's not fair to treat us like that. And then I remembered Major Abel, and I wished if he was here. He was the common sense policy man. But I didn't give up. I installed the programming language on my com computer at work, and I start programming. And soon enough, I had a folder full of computer graphic files. One of them was a picture of Major Sarah Bamel from the Wisconsin unit, who was a good friend of mine. But then the strict unit were being replaced. And the new commander is also a common sense policy officer. I was given back my privileges, my cell phone, a computer, CDs if I wanted to have some. But the thing is, my CDs from college were destroyed. And I never drew back my Pikachu. But I still remember it very well. In July of 2009, I got my special immigrant visa to come here, and I found out that I'm coming to Wisconsin. I arrived here with an eagerness for success. I can finally live the many dreams that I had. I can finally build a future. After I arrived, I got an internship in IT, and that internship was a turning point for me because I didn't study programming for four years to be installing printers and changing inks and fixing the problem of someone else's zip file. I wanted to be a programmer, and most IT jobs here doesn't give me that. So I started to think up thinking about changing my career. And uh, since I'm in America, I can be whatever I want, so I had so many options. I thought of getting my MFA, and uh, I went to school and asked, but for that I was told that I need almost another bachelor degree in art. And since I made my peace with not being an artist long time ago, I was okay with getting a job that I enjoy doing and pays me well, 
So on my own time, I can do my hobbies. At the same time, there was something else I wanted to be. I miss working with the Army. And I remember the first time, or when I got my selective service card in the mail, how excited I was because I thought the, I thought the government is asking me to become a soldier because of my work as translator. And I was very happy and excited until I learned what a selective service card is, which is draft. But not too long after that, I did join the Army National Guard, wanting to become a common sense kind of leader, like these officers that I worked for in Iraq, like Major Abel and Major Bamel and Colonel Garrity and Colonel Doro, just to name a few. And as a National Guard soldier, I get to have a civilian career. And so I decided to study economics. And I swear to God, I don't know how or why I decided that. <laughs> I went to school and I put in up an application. I was accepted in the grad school, in the grad program. And I studied statistics and statistical programmings and all the micro and macro econ stuff. And it was tough, but I graduated in summer 2015. Not sure who was gonna hire someone in my background. Because by now, I am too many things. I am a computer scientist, I am an economist, and an army sergeant with a logistic and ammo background, and I am a storyteller. And it took me eight months to, find, to finally get an offer from the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the Department of Commerce. And now I write codes, statistical and, and uh, statistical code mainly, uh, for regional economics. Um, and when I remember my dream of becoming an actor, I wonder, will, will I be happier? Will my life be easier or better? And then I Remember that my computer science degree is what helped me get a job in Kurdistan, what helped me survive in Iraq. And I think it's okay, sometimes it's okay not to get everything we wanted to be when we were little. But we should always try to, to be or, or to, to, to get what's best for us, what we enjoy doing in the second place. And honestly, I enjoy, do, I enjoy doing what I do now. And I feel blessed that I've been introduced to the art of storytelling because it makes me feel like an artist. And it gives me the opportunity to share stories from my beautiful and interesting life. Thank you. That was Abbas Musa. Abbas is an economist at the Bureau of Economic Analysis. As a storyteller, he's been featured on the Moth Radio Hour on NPR. Currently working on his memoir, he has been featured in multiple articles and as a guest speaker sharing some of his stories and experiences. If you enjoyed today's stories or are a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb up the rankings, and that helps new listeners find the podcast. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, Simon's Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. 
The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barger with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Shane Hanlon, Aaron Barker, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Busboys and Poets for hosting these shows. And to, uh, hmm, we need a joke. Thanks for listening. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.